Thank you, Larry. That will be number four on his CD. (laughs) Well, today is September 20th. Last year on September 20th, I was in eastern Massachusetts to officiate at the wedding of Brian and Elizabeth Degnan. And I think, although we've already prayed for them, I'd like to pray again for their marriage. Father and God, we are so thankful that You and your sovereignty have brought these two together. We thank you, Lord, that they now approach Central Asia not as individuals, but as a team. And Lord, we pray for their marriage. We know that Satan hates good marriages. We pray, Father, that that which they display in that culture will honor you And be a model, O God, of what can exist between a man and woman who live together in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this couple, their devotion to you as individuals, and now their devotion to you as a couple. We thank you through Jesus. Amen. The Gospel of John has two endings. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John wrote, Therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And then a chapter later in chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, John wrote, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John has two conclusions, and we have to say, why? And that question really is not within the purview of what we want to talk about this morning. But the point that's made in both of these conclusions is this. Of all of the many things that John saw Jesus do, of all of the many things that he heard Jesus say, out of all of this vast store of experience that John had with Jesus Christ, he selected a very very few, and recorded these for all coming generations. That being true, we would have to conclude that the things that John recorded were and are of extreme importance, or else these are not the ones that he would have chosen. In recent days, I've found myself meditating more and more on the events in John chapter 4, the woman at the well near Sychar. Let me tell you one reason why I think this passage, this episode, is of great importance. The first Bible that was printed, actually the first book of any size that was printed, was the Latin Vulgate Bible. This Bible was printed by Johann Gutenberg, some either in 1454 or 1455, uncertain as to the exact year. 
But if you've ever looked at a copy of that Bible, I'm sure you noticed that as the columns went along, there was no clear sign when one book ended and another began. The only way you knew that a book was ending and another beginning was the first line of the next book had a large capital letter, and the scribes, after the book had been printed, took red ink and colored the last sentence of the, of the previous book and colored with red the first sentence of the next book. That's where we get the word rubric. Rubric means red. So this is under that rubric and that was under that rubric. But there are no chapters and there are no verses. As a matter of fact, you have to pay attention to even notice when the next book begins. In 1551, the French royal printer, a man named Robert Stevens, was riding a horse from Switzerland to France. And he was preparing to do another printing of the Bible. And he decided to make the Bible easier to read. He was going to divide it into chapters and verses. And so, as he rode along on his horse with a marker, he marked where chapters should be and where verses should be. And these are the chapters and verses that we have in our Bible today. Now, sometimes, as you notice, where a chapter begins and another one ends, you wonder, did his horse stumble or jump a little bit? Because uh, it just really is not exactly where it ought to be. But it's interesting as we look at the divisions that Stephen's made in the Gospel of John, we find that he divided the book into 879 verses. There are 879 verses in John, if you include the dozen or so that are questionable, such as the account of the woman taken in adultery. And of these 879 verses, 57 are devoted to the incident that took place by the well near the city of Sychar. That is, if you would include the last verses of chapter 3, which are the prelude and explanation for what happens in chapter 4. Now, that being true, think about this. One-sixteenth of all of the Gospel of John is devoted to this incident. That's significant, isn't it? One-sixteenth of this book is devoted to this incident. That, to me, says, in John's thinking, this is important. There are lessons that he wants us to learn, lessons about Jesus, that we might know his identity, we might know something about his character, that we might believe and understand him. Jesus had been in the city of Jerusalem for really a matter of weeks, probably. And it was during this time that he had the well-known encounter with Nicodemus, out of which came John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not, might not perish but have everlasting life. And then after a time, Jesus left the city of Jerusalem and went out into the land. Now, some of your Bibles, as a matter of fact, I think most of them say that Jesus went into Judea. That doesn't make sense because that's where he already was. But the Greek literally says, the word Judea is an adjective, and it says Jesus went into the Judean land. And so he left Jerusalem and went into the countryside, visiting the villages and visiting the cities and teaching and preaching and healing. And during that time... 
John the Baptist was at Aenean, immersing great numbers of people. But as Jesus traveled among the villages and the cities of Judea, great flocks of people came to him, more than were going to where John was located. And Jesus' disciples began to immersing, even as John had been doing. Jesus, in a sense, entered into the ministry of John on this occasion. Now the Pharisees, as they saw how many people were flocking to Jesus, and the numbers that were coming to him to be immersed were greater than those that were going to John, they thought, here is an opportunity to cause trouble. And so they went to John and said, John, do you notice that more people are flocking to Jesus than are coming to you. Notice his disciples are immersing more than you're immersing. John answered, well, he must increase, but I must decrease. But we see disciples of John struggling with that a little bit. Because the Pharisees were doing all that they could to create competition and envy, between those who were associated with John's ministry and those who were associated with Jesus' ministry, Jesus left the area. And he traveled through Samaria, heading back toward Galilee. Now, traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria, or rather to Galilee, one could either head east and go to the Jordan River Valley and travel north and then enter Galilee. That was the long way around, and that was the the journey, the route that most Jews preferred because they did not want to go through Samaria. We really don't know why, but Scripture says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I wonder, is it because God the Father wanted him to have an encounter with this woman? We don't know. But for some reason, Jesus did not take the religious route, but he took the direct route going through Samaria north to Galilee. As he traveled, traveling, walking probably about six hours, he became weary. They came to the well uh, outside of Sychar, and there he sat down while his disciples went into the city to dry to buy some food. Jesus was weary. Jesus was exhausted. And here we see the first lesson about our Lord that John would have us learn as we encounter this episode. Our Lord Jesus experienced life upon this earth as a human being. Between the cradle and between the cross, Jesus experienced everything as a human would experience it. For a long time I have been wary about saying to someone, I know what you're going through. We wonder that about Jesus. Do we really know what he went through? Let me illustrate. When Barbara died, it was interesting how other men whose wives had died came to me telling me what it was like. One dear brother, Russell Kelly from Connecticut, every time I talk to Russell, he tells me over and over again, when my wife died, I went to church and I sat in a whole bunch of people and I have never felt so alone in my whole life. That's not the way I ever felt. Another brother said to me, it was like something was amputated. I didn't feel that at all. 
One brother called me and said, could we have lunch? And so I did, and the first words out of his mouth were these, how does it feel to be a widower? (laughs) I hadn't known that title yet, still don't. But then I thought, how does it feel? And the only analogy that came to me, and one I've spoken to you, is for 59 years, Barbara and I wove a life, a fabric, warp and woof. I don't know whether she was warp or woof, but when she died, that part was gone. And the fabric fell to the floor, a disheveled, formless heap. And I lost my identity, and I still am struggling with that. That's been my experience. You see, to say, I know what you're going through, you may go through the same thing somebody else does. But each of us will experience it uniquely. And so we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, what was it like? What was it like to be in the wilderness where the temptations came and you were hungry and Satan said, you're turn the stones into bread. And you said, no, the Bible says thou shalt live uh, the bread of life, the word of God. That's what we're after, the will of God, the word of God, not bread. And the other thing, when he could have cast himself down from the temple, what was that like? I don't know what that was like. I don't know what it was like to be before the tomb of Lazarus and weep when he had the power to do something and did, but he still knew that very human grief. Whatever it was like for Jesus, everything that he experienced, even though it was unique for him, it still was the human experience. He experienced everything within the confines of humanity, even as we must do as we are confined on one side with the cradle and on the other side with death. Our Lord experienced it as we do. And so when we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that after He had made atonement for sins, He sat down by the right hand of the majesty upon high. Today He upholds all things by the word of His power. Who is that one? It is one who while he walked upon the earth, knew what it was like to endure the human experience. The great high priest, who can be touched in every point like as we are, because he walked the same path and lived the same life that we live. He experienced things as humanity. But here's another thing to notice in this episode. Jesus set the example of doing what we can to avoid competition between ministries. There are various reasons why I personally cannot cooperate with certain ministries. I cannot cooperate with a ministry that is led by ungodly leadership. I cannot cooperate with a ministry that is teaching false doctrine. And some might argue, which doctrines? And I suppose that's a personal decision each one of us has to make. But you know, in Tulsa, most of the division and problems between ministries doesn't have to do with either of those issues. It's competition, isn't it? It's competition. I've got to build my institution. I have to make it big. I have to make it grow. I have to get bodies. I have to get bucks. And the easiest way to do that is take them away from someone else. A dear friend of mine recently lost his position in church leadership in another state. 
He was casting about what to do, and one day he came to Tulsa, and we were sitting and talking. He said, Jim, what do you think about my coming to Tulsa and starting a church? And I said, why? (laughs) Do we need another one? You know, why? (laughs) And this man, if he came, because he is a man of charismatic personality, if he began a church, it would grow. People would leave other churches and come to him and flock, and it would grow. But does that please God? Does it please God to see the competition that exists between those who claim the name of Jesus and claim to have the same Lord? Our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, modeled non-competition when the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus began to notice that Jesus was growing more than John in ministry and our Lord left the area remove the element of competition. But you know that happens not just between ministries, it happens in churches, doesn't it? How sad at times to see churches split apart over competition. Now my background, as most of you know, is from the Campbellstone Restoration Movement. The Campbellstone Restoration Movement said we look at all the divisions that we see in the world, all the denominations and people loyal to this creed and this group loyal to that creed. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we Christians could all be one? So let's get rid of human names. Let's get rid of human denominations. Let's get rid of creeds. And let's just follow the Bible. And congregations left their denominations began to be a part of that movement. But in 1851 at Paris, Kentucky, there was a little church, a little congregation, and there were a couple of wealthy families in the church. And one of the families decided the church needed an organ. And so they bought an organ. Now up to that time, being on the frontier, they didn't have an organ. They just sung a cappella. But now this rich family bought an organ. There was another rich family that was jealous because this family was being praised for buying the church an organ. And so they slipped in at night and took the organ out and put it on the lawn. And a little later, then this group came back and put it in again. That split the church. If you travel through that part of Kentucky today, you'll see churches with doors too small and windows too small to get an organ through. And, and, and it split. And today the non-instrumental churches of Christ exist because of that congregational fight that started in 1851 in Paris, Kentucky. <laughs> Division. Isn't that a terrible thing? And yet it still goes on today, doesn't it? competition within churches, competition between churches. I cannot imagine what God sitting on His throne thinks about us when our human pride and competition does what it does to destroy the kingdom of God or at least lessen its impact. We were talking last Sunday night. The question came, where did postmodernism come from? Why do people question? And one thing, I, and for me at least, in my opinion, one of the problems is the church today, in, in often in competition, not serious study of truth, has presented such things as, well, what is truth? That question that Pilate asked could almost be asked of Christendom, couldn't it? Because we give so many different answers. And part of it comes from competition. Somebody has to keep coming up with something new in order to draw people to him to get bodies and bucks so his institution can grow. I wonder what God thinks about I think I probably know what he thinks about all of that. But you know, this whole thing of Jesus living among us as a human, 
John 1 says uh, He became flesh and dwelt among us, as Brian pointed out a few weeks ago in a sermon. That word, uh, that He dwelt among us, is the Greek word skenao, which literally means to pitch a tent. And all of us really are just pitching a tent in this life, aren't we? We are here between the cradle and the grave. And between times, this is not our permanent home. This is not where we're going to spend eternity. Our time here is very brief and we're just pitching a tent. And Jesus pitched His tent. You guys are camping out here. Here's your tents. I'm going to put mine in your circle. Jesus tented among us for a season and lived the human life. Another thing that grabs our attention as we read this account Jesus ignored the barriers of social norms. He ignored the barriers of religious prejudice. He really ignored the norms of gender thinking, social norms at least, in order to touch the life of this woman. Now there were several barriers socially that existed between Jesus and this woman. First of all, She was a Samaritan. And the Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. It's hard for us to grasp the intensity of that, unless we can think of the racial prejudice if you grew up in that environment. And so when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, He was making a very powerful point because a Jew would have a problem giving any kind of an accolade to any Samaritan. So when Jesus approached this woman, the first barrier that existed between him and her was she was Samaritan and he was Jew, and they had nothing to do with each other as far as social norms were concerned. Second, she was a Samaritan woman. Observant Jews believed that all Samaritan women were perpetually unclean. Isn't that something? perpetually unclean, not only because she was Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Also, Jesus was recognized as a rabbi. And according to the social norms of that day, rabbis never spoke to women in public, not even their wives. I was reading the writings of one rabbi, and he said, what a waste of time for a rabbi to talk to a woman in public. Uh, Today, that would be a challenge, wouldn't it? But that was the view that was held there. But notice, Jesus completely ignored all of this as if they did not exist. Before Him was one of His creatures. Before Him was one of those whom He loved and He desired to deliver from a life of broken relationships. There's so much we don't know about this woman who had had five husbands and now was cohabiting with a man who was not her legal husband. Was her life one of despair? Was her life one of sin? Was it a life of looking to any man who could take care of her, and so she was willing to surrender herself? So much we don't know about her, but this we do know, this woman needed God. And Jesus saw her. In God's eyes... No human being is garbage. In God's eyes, no human being is riffraff. But every human being is a part of that race that is made in the image of God. 
the alcohol-saturated man who wanders up and down this alley is of that race made in the image of God. This woman who comes to our door, often just exuding the smell of alcohol, usually with a man or two with her. She's been coming for years and years. Shirley knows her well. So does Debbie and everybody else in the office. She is one of God's creatures made in the image of God. The hedonistic yuppie who moves from bar to bar in the Blue Dome District. The professional athlete who from city to city impregnates women as he moves along. The particular unprincipled politician who who does everything he can to stay in power with absolutely no principles at all. The, The minister who hides his secret trysts with women of the congregation, the angry racist who would harm all who can oppose him, the dictator, Islamic dictator, who rules a country with cruel rigidity. All of these are creatures made in the image of God. And whatever barrier there is between them and us, God still cares for them. And glory to God from time to time, we see people delivered out of these situations and manifesting the life of Jesus Christ. You name it. But every person who walks upon this earth is a part of the race made in the image of God. The race for whom Jesus Christ went to the cross, and the race from whom those in bondage to Satan continually are being delivered from age to age and generation. You know, I thank God I was born in this country. I thank God that I have had in my life advantages that so many people have never had. I thank God I was born with a sound mind and a sound body. But these things in no way make me superior to anyone. (laughs) I am what I am because by God's grace He chose it to be that way because He must have had some purpose for me. And the blessed life that I have lived doesn't make me superior, but what it does do is put a burden upon my shoulders. A burden to use whatever gifts and talents and ability and strength and health to bring Jesus Christ into the life of other people. And those who have found Him to help them learn how to walk the path that Jesus Christ wants them to walk. There's not one person in this room who has a right to look down on anyone. (laughs) There but for the grace of God go I. A third thing that John highlights in this episode is Jesus... Divine omniscience. Go get your husband. I don't have one. You've answered rightly. You've had five husbands, and the man with whom you're cohabiting now is not your legal husband. How did Jesus know these things? I recall in the years in which my major investment of ours was in counseling. And after one 
spends hours and weeks and days in counseling, there's something that develops within the counselor that he himself does not understand. You see, every counselee exudes subliminal signs. And a counselor, after a season, after a period of time, begins to unconsciously read those subliminal signs. And it's amazing at times as you're talking with someone how you out of the blue can speak to them and describe their situation and a degree of their history. And suddenly things open up and you can talk about pains that they have. But no subliminal signs could ever review five husbands and now the man you have isn't your husband. No detail like that could be given. A while back, I was traveling to a church where I had often been. I'd been involved with this church for many years. I knew the leaders inside out. I knew their marriages. I knew the struggles they had had. And I was accompanying a brother who was going there for the first time. He was going to be doing teaching. And because there were some very sensitive issues in this church and things I knew about the lives of the people I wanted to prepare him so he would not inadvertently say something or do something that would cause a problem. And so I told him about the history of the church many years. I told him about the different couples. I told him about their marriage, the struggles they had had with their children. And he arrived, therefore, somewhat fully informed, more than somewhat fully informed, about the church and the lives of the individuals. Following the teaching, this man went to one particular couple and began to speak to them about their history and about their life. And they were astounded because, as the man said, he read our mail. But as I sat listening, I thought, is he remembering what I told him? Or is this really a word from God? Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ talked to this woman, no one had prepped him. There was no shill in the audience who was doing anything to prepare it for him. But divine omniscience was at work. Think of Nathaniel when Jesus first, Nathaniel was brought to Jesus, and Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the tree before you ever came, and Nathaniel said, oh, you're the Son of God. It was convincing, convincing. Last Sunday night in the Truth Project, the speaker, speaking of God's omniscience, talked about a man with whom he was working who was struggling with pornography. And the man said, you know, I really struggle with pornography most when my my wife and children leave, and I'm all alone. And the speaker said that he said to the man, would you watch pornography if God were in the room with you? (laughs) No, well, he's in the room with you. He knows everything. There's an old quartet song that has these words, you cannot hide from God. Though mountains cover you, He knows you at life's every turn. He knows your thoughts that blight and burn. He knows when His own Son you spurn, you cannot hide from God. And you know, we think about that, don't we? That God knows our sins and we shudder. But there's another wonderful side too. Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father. The very hairs of your head are numbered. God knows what you need even before you ask. Aren't you thankful that that kind of omniscience is involved with the most intimate details of your life? 
Jesus said, whenever you are giving alms, don't do it where men can see it, but do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does, and your Father that sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't get out and pray in public and call attention to what you're doing, but go to your closet and pray in secret, and the Father to whom you pray in secret will see in secret and will hear you and reward you. Aren't we glad? Aren't we overjoyed? Aren't we thankful that our God has that kind of omniscience, that He knows us that intimately? Have you ever spent much time reading the 139th Psalm? What a wonderful psalm that is. It talks about God's omniscience. He knows my word before I say it. He knows my getting out of a chair before I even start. He knows my rising up, my sitting down. He knew me when I was in the womb. And as the psalmist goes through all of this, he finally says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And it is, isn't it? But have you noticed how he closes that psalm? That's so beautiful. Because you have this omniscience, because you know the fiber of my being, because you know me better than I know myself, search me, O God. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Ah, don't we want that. Paul said, I thank God I do not have to judge myself. Who among us can adequately evaluate our own hearts? But God can. Oh, God, search me. If there is anything in me that is wrong and not right, dear God, please put a mirror in front of me. Let me see it according to your assessment of my life, not my assessment. I am so thankful for the omniscience of God. He knows my rising up, my sitting down, my words even before I've spoken them, and my thoughts before I think them. Yes, He knows my failings. Yes, He knows my sin. But also, as Scripture says, He remembers that we are as dust, that we're human. And His grace extends to us, even in our failures. The final lesson this morning, and there are so many, but here's the the final one we'll notice is this. The statement Jesus made about worship. Now, the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim had built a temple. And in that temple, they did have a type of Jehovistic worship. They did worship Jehovah. But they had mixed with it other gods. And so they had a synchristic type of worship. Not worshiping the true God, but worshiping a God. And so this woman, trying to maneuver the conversation away from some of the things that she wasn't real happy about, Now, you Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship on on Mount Gerizim, which is right. And notice what Jesus did. She asked about place. But Jesus answered with who and how. (laughs) He said, the day is coming when you'll worship neither in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. But God is the Spirit. All they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, the temple isn't important. You don't need an altar. You don't need a priest. You don't need to burn animals. But is my spirit touching his spirit and that divine communication that takes place between us in those moments that is true worship? 
one mediator between God and man, and that's all we need. And frankly, in truth, that's all we have. Not only worship in spirit, but worship in truth. There are two Greek words in Scripture, the New Testament, that are used for knowing God. Gnosko, which means to know by experience. And oida, which means to know, shall we say, his identity. And both of those are important. There are some people who are so experience-oriented they could worship almost anything. They are quote-unquote spiritual beings. <laughs> and there are others who are so intellectual they can study forever about God but never know a living relationship with God. To worship in spirit and truth, both are important. I need to know God the Father. I need to know God the Son. I need to know God the Holy Spirit. I need to know all that the Bible reveals to me about these persons who constitute the being that we know as God. I do not want to worship a false God. Oida, know Him, know who He is, know His identity, know about Him. But Gnosko, have that living, experiential relationship, this one whom we know. It is the triune God whom we worship. Well, we conclude as we began. John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, out of all the experiences that he had with Christ and all the things he heard him say, chose but a few to write down to preserve for all future generations. He chose the ones that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in his estimation were the most important ones for us to see, to hear, to read, and to remember. This episode, one-sixteenth of the book, contains important things for us. This morning, we have talked about four of them. Father, we thank you for this revelation that is in Holy Scripture. May we, O oh God, take to heart whatever you have wanted to say to us today. Through Jesus, amen.